blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory been in the first book of first timothy getting back to that series and um because it makes perfect sense we're going to be in first timothy so i need you to turn your bibles to genesis and uh to genesis chapter one you'll see this in just in just a minute uh i have i have a friend and with this with this friend he um he came to know jesus when he was 17 and uh as he as he came to know jesus he was he went to a church, he said it was a, you know, probably a church similar to ours, um, and had a great youth group, and it was his first outing with his, his youth small group, and they were going to go down to the beach, and he was from California. They were going down to the beach, and he's riding shotgun, youth leaders in the front seat, and as they're driving down the road, this, this other car comes and cuts them off. And... He looks at the driver, the driver's busy driving, so my friend rolls the window down and waves at the other driver. And the driver of the car is, is, is horrified because he waved with one finger. And, <laughs> and to make matters worse, the other car that cut them off was the, the head of the deacon board at this little church that they go to. <laughs> And, um, and so the, the youth leader looks at him. He says, what in the world are you doing? And my friend's like, what do you mean? What am I doing? Um, he cut us off. Uh, you know, he needs to have his driving rated. And I gave him a rating of one between one and ten. That was what he basically did. And the youth leader goes, you can't do that. And he goes, why not? Christians don't do that. And he goes, yes, they do. <laughs> and he goes, I, I've seen them do it. He goes, well, Christians shouldn't do that. And then he pulled them over, and they pulled the car over, and, and he kind of walked them, th- walked my friend through. Um, now that he is in this new faith, uh, there's, there's a way to, to think, the way to, to act, the way to behave um, that is in line with, with Christ-like patterns, not cultural patterns. And so he kind of like began to, to open up his eyes that, that decisions that he makes need to be decisions based on what the Bible says based upon what Christ would do rather than just what he's always done. And so as we, as we think about it here as, as, as Christians at YCC and as our church, when we, when we come to situations within our culture that differ from what the Bible says is the normative thing, then we don't, we don't discount what the Bible says. Um, instead, we will look to what scripture says and not to what culture says. And, and I say this because we're coming to one of these passages today in Timothy that, that tends to, when, when, when modern day people read this text, they will say things like, well, this was written by Paul 2,000 years ago. He was in a different context. It doesn't apply to us today. It's for a different time and a different way. And, and so we're going to look at this today in an introduction. Let me read this text for you. And um, you'll get what I'm saying. It says this. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And then a hush came over the crowd. (laughs) With this text. Now, um, 
With that being said, um, we need to understand a few things. Paul, he's talking here in the context of church. He's talking in context of leadership in the church. He's talking in the context of teaching and leadership within the church. Now, if we're going to understand what what Paul is saying to Timothy and what he's wanting Timothy to communicate to the church in Ephesus and what he's wanting us also to learn as an extension of that, it's, I think, really important to do exactly what Paul does here and exactly actually what Jesus does every time issues of of gender arise within within, um, a context of, of conversation. Both Paul and Jesus always go back to the beginning. They always go back to creation. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. And that's why I say turn to Genesis 1. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, we just thank you for, we thank you for every person that you bring here this morning. Father, we recognize this is your church. This is your word in which I preach. And I would ask, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of each one of us here this morning. This is a topic, Father, that that um, we struggle with, you don't struggle with, but we do uh, in our culture today. Help us to see with your eyes and your heart and uh, to, to begin us thinking as you would think about the, the value that is found within the way that you've created us. Uh, we thank you for this time. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this, let's go, we'll jump right in here and look at verse 1 of Genesis. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, and I'll just state this up front, I know that for some this is very foundational, but it's also fundamental for our faith. And so it's really valuable, especially as we look at this topic, to go to the creation story. And, And so understanding this, what we see here is that God is the creator. He's the creator of, of gender. God's the one that determines that. Now, um, in the beginning, God created the earth. And then we get to this passage um, here. And in verse 27 is where Paul picks it up when he's talking about genders here. And he says this. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And here's maybe a simple statement, but it's also a profound statement within our culture today that according to Scripture, God created men and he created women. And gender is not based on culture. It's based on creation. God created men and women and, and gender is based upon creation. Now, in the 60s, those of you who were still alive or were alive back then, in the 60s, you, you understand that there's this strong feminism movement that's taking place at this, this point in time. And, and virtually this movement would say that, that virtually um, everyone who's born is gender neutral. They might have different plumbing, but ultimately everyone is the same. And, and if you look at little girls, little girls, they don't like dolls and they don't like pink because they're girls they like dolls and they like pink because the 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 male dominated culture enforced that and imposed that and oppressed them with that idea they might also say that little boys they they don't like guns and things to beat their siblings with because they're boys they like these things because um, society has put guns in their hands at the earliest of of ages And, and so they say that culture it, it makes little girls like barbies it makes little boys turn everything into gun and according to that movement and according to those that adhere to that movement it's not about genetics it's about culture but that that leads to this question if it's about culture who is it that shaped that culture who is it that shaped the culture that led it that way 
The answer is simple. Women and men shaped the culture that way. It's because they were created that way. Any of us who have kids understand this, even if you don't have kids, you understand this, that that, uh, when these little whippersnappers pop out, right, there's some distinctives that take place with, with each of those things. Although with my kids, I do put guns in the boys' hands and dolls in the girls' hands, but it's because I'm a boy. That's what I do. But uh, anyway, uh, this is what's important, I think, for us to think about here. Uh, To be female, to be male, is not either good or bad. It's not to be better or worse. Are men and women equal? I think there's no way you can read Scripture and not say unequivocally yes. Men and women are equal. They are both created, we are both created in the image of God. And I understand that there's been abuses in all of our history. People have taken texts like this and they've abused them. We're going to hopefully debunk that as we go through here. But one is not better than the other. They're equal because they're created in the image of God and they have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. Women don't have anything to prove to men and men don't have anything to prove to women because They both have a Savior who loves them, who died for them, who values them for who they are. Now, when God created men and women, he he declared that they were good. Look here at verse 28. It says this, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates them. God gives them a job description. He says, I want you to multiply, be fruitful. I want you to have a bunch of kids. I want you to raise them to love God, to serve God, to love one another, to serve one another, to do good things. And then he says, I want you to subdue the earth. And part of that, part of that is to create a culture that glorifies God. That's what it's saying here. And then verse 31, it says this. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So he looked upon what he created, and he said, it's, it's very good. It's not kind of good, it's very good. He looked upon man, very good. Looked upon woman, very good. Now, when we come to Genesis chapter 2, it recounts creation and gives some details that Genesis 1 left out. And it starts before God had created woman. And Adam is in the garden, and he's by himself, and then it comes to verse 18, and it says this in verse 18. The Lord, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable for him. So, so the first thing that we see here, so that we see here is that, that for men, um, it's not good for them to be alone. And what's interesting, it's not good, but sin hasn't entered the world yet. It's just it's not good for man to be alone. Man is incomplete without woman. And that goes both, both directions. Uh, and so we see this pattern begin to develop. We're going to see it more in just a minute. But marriage is, mirrors the imago Dei. It mirrors the image of God. That's what we see. Uh, man is made in the image of God. And something we know about God is that God is and God also lives within community. It's called the Trinity. God lives in this way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one and equal in community together. And man being created in God's image also means that man is designed as well to live within community. Now, 
Today, many people read a verse like verse 18 when it says, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper that's suitable for him, and that will be offensive to them. How could God belittle women like this to make them a helper to man? But that says so much about our culture, uh, and it says so much about our culture because in the Psalms and in the Proverbs and all throughout Scripture, God is called our helper. Is that belittling to God that he is the helper of humankind? The Holy Spirit is called our helper. Is it belittling? Is it demeaning of the Holy Spirit? Christ, he came not to be served, but to help. Not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So is it belittling to say that Christ is a helper? Our culture says it's belittling to be a helper. Now jump to verse 34, I don't have the slide up, but verse, verse 24, I'm sorry, it says this. It says, for this reason a man shall leave his father, leave his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now again, in, in Genesis 2, the man, the man is formed out of the dust of the ground. Man was formed, and out of the dust of the ground, God breathed life into him. And then God took woman out of man specifically literally this means took it out of the side most of your translations will say rib but took it out of his rib one commentator said that a woman doesn't belong in front of him she doesn't belong behind him she belongs right next to him because they are partners they are they're one flesh husband and wife are, are one flesh now think about that just for a moment noah read it earlier Paul calls this a mystery. It's a mystery, just like the Trinity is a mystery. Three in one, woman and man created in the image of God, two in one. Now verse 25 says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Not a word that gets much used today in church, naked, but there it is. Um, this is a picture of marriage before sin. This is a picture of marriage um, when there wasn't the, the break that came from original sin, where woman, man, where they're intimate, there's no division between them. This is beautiful. There's no shame. There's just oneness. There's beauty. There's acceptance. But then we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the insertion of um, another character in our story. You know of him. You've heard of him. A guy named Satan. He's created by God. A lot of people think that Satan's always existed. He's not. He was created by God. It was known that he was the most beautiful of all the angel, angels as well as the most wise. But what often comes with people that are beautiful and wise is they have some pride issues. And, and Satan had pride issues. And uh, he thought he could do a better job than God. And so he rebelled. God kicked him out of heaven and he took with him a third of of all of the angels and they became demons and they are still at war for hearts and minds even to this day still going on and this is where we pick it up in in number uh, verse one of chapter three now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the lord god had made and he said to the woman so he, first off he, he noticed this so he said to the woman why didn't he go why did he go to the woman we don't know that there's lots of debate why did satan go to the woman and not not to the man. But here he goes. He goes to Eve. He doesn't go to Adam, but he goes to her. And then he says, did God actually say, did God actually say this? Did he actually say not to eat of any tree in the garden? So he goes to Eve. He doesn't go to Adam. 
Adam was created first, but he goes to Eve. And why does he do this? Well, a lot of reasons why, but he's cunning, he's crafty. Now, what's interesting here is God, God had said that they could eat of any tree of the garden but one tree, the tree of good and evil. And then Satan comes along and he says, did God, did he actually say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No, no, he didn't say that. Why did he say that? He said it because he's cunning, he's, he's deceptive, and he does what he, he always does. He, he adds a little bit, he takes a little bit away, he twists a little bit. It's just what he did with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 during the temptation where, where he twisted the words of God. He adds a little bit, he takes a little bit away, and, and he gets people to question God's word, he gets people to question God's ways. This is how we get cults, this is how we get heresies, this is how we get a bunch of wackos, and this is how we get the situation that was being faced in Ephesus, the church in which Paul was writing Timothy to say, root out the false doctrine. This is false doctrine that came from the, the twisting that Satan brings so often. So, um, now, verse 2. Verse 2 says this. The woman said to the serpent, may I eat from the fruit? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the tree of the garden, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said... Um, now, hold on just for a second. Notice what she does here. Um, she's kind of setting Satan straight a little bit. She says, no, that's not what God said. He said we could, we could eat of any but one. But then look at what she says. Then she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will surely die. This is where it gets weird because God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. He didn't say that. So it leaves us with the question, like, where does Eve get this? Why does Eve actually, why is she saying this? Maybe it was because um, Adam was a bad Bible teacher. Like, that could be it, because you remember from chapter 2, God told Adam what the instructions were, and then he had to pass it on. So maybe Adam was just a bad Bible teacher, or maybe Eve was a bad Bible student. We don't know. There's scholars that argue about all the time. But, but uh, then it goes on to verse 4, and the serpent says, Surely you won't die. He calls God here a liar. What's his point? For God knows that, he says, God knows when you eat of it, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing, knowing evil. So what's Satan's point here? What's he getting at? What's he driving at as he's talking here with Eve? And this is it. Satan's message to Eve is your husband and God, they're holding you back. They're holding you back. Back to the 60s feminism movement for just a minute. That's nothing new. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time. He's saying, Eve, you can be like God. Satan ought to know that this doesn't work because he tried it and got kicked out. But he goes after Eve anyway. Eve, you can be liberated from God. You can be liberated from God's word. You can be liberated from your, your husband's word, your husband's authority. God has a will, but you have a will too, Eve. God has his opinions, but Eve, you should have your opinions as well. God and your husband, they're holding you back. They're holding you down. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. There's the old saying, when Adam was away, Eve went astray. But that's not true. Adam is there the whole time. 
We don't know what he's doing. Could be watching ESPN. We have no idea. We do know what he's not doing. He's not leading. He's not protecting. He's not running interference here. He's not defending against Satan. But be fair, you know, Eve isn't asking for help here, but he's also not offering any help. Now, for many, many Christian wives today, this is kind of their story. I hear this, unfortunately, too often. They'll say things like, my husband, he's spiritually distracted, he's spiritually weak, he won't lead, he won't pray, he's a coward, he, he won't correct, he won't stand up, he doesn't handle the Bible well. So for many women, they're, they're saying, Satan's attacking my home, he's attacking my kids, he's attacking my marriage, and somebody's got to stand up, somebody's got to do something, somebody's got to fill this leadership void, and my husband's not doing it, so many well-meaning women stand up in their homes Stand up in their churches because men won't. Men won't stand up and lead and teach. They won't sacrifice. So women say something. Um, they, something's got to give. But then notice what happens in verse 7. Verse 7 says this. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, sadly, there's distance There's distance, there's mistrust, there's division. They've got their fig leaves going on. And nowadays, I know the same is true. There's lots of fig leaves. We can talk about fig leaves in marriages. You know, there's fig leaves like between husbands and wives. There's prenuptial agreements. There's private investigators. There's there's, uh, living together before marriage because, you know, we can't trust each other well enough um, to commit ourselves to one another. There's separate finances because there's lack of trust. There's emotional buffers that can take place oftentimes. There's secret sins. And then outside of, outside of just marriage relationships, relationally speaking, people wear fig leaves. And so as we look here at the garden, there's really four questions that we're all posed with. And the first one is, what are my relational fig leaves? What are the things in my life, in your life, that are, are breaking and causing division within relationship, whether it's with your spouse or whether it's with those that are closest to you? Look at verse 8 here. Verse 8 says this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I find this incredibly funny. They do exactly what kids do today. Get in trouble, run and hide. I remember as a young kid, I was about nine, I, I, I can't remember exactly what I did. Probably hung my brother up by his underwear on a coat rack or something like that. And my mom gave me those words, wait until your dad gets home. Get up to your room and wait for your dad to get home. I go up to my room. Um, problem is, I, I went under my bed because I was scared to hide. Um, my dad wasn't home for a couple hours. Well, I fell asleep. Dad comes home. They're looking for me so I can get my um, instruction. And uh, they can't find me, so they panic. They start to call, um, like, the neighbors. And this. I wake up hours later, come walking downstairs. Our living room is full of all the neighborhoods, they're planning a search party to come find me wherever I am. <laughs> and then I really got in trouble after that. It was, but, but isn't that funny? That's what they're doing here, and I find that we do the same thing today, even as adults. 
We have sophisticated ways of hiding from conviction. When we do something wrong, when we grow up, it's, it's not like we really learn how to, how to repent of our sin. We just seem to find ways to hide. Some people hide from, from conviction through their theology. They read or hear something they don't like, or they find ways to outthink themselves, or they find loopholes. Um, in our culture, a lot of times today, our culture teaches us to project all of our problems on other people. And so we, instead of dealing with our own stuff, we, we hide it um, by projecting it on other people. As if such and such happened, not, if, if this didn't happen to me when I was younger, I wouldn't be like this today. And we have different ways of, of hiding, hiding behind those, those convictions rather than owning it and repenting it. We put it on other people. Um, we maybe even avoid certain friends or certain conversations um, because we know that if we have certain conversations with certain friends or there are certain people in our lives that they really won't let us get away with, you know, living on the surface. I don't know if you have people in your life like this where they, they just like, they go deep right away because they just, they realize there's not, there's not enough time in life to spend talking about, you know, the stuff we talk about that means very little most of the time and so we can tend to avoid people like like that avoid that kind of thing and and uh, I think this is good Steve came up and said growth groups you know this is growth groups are starting up again this week I think for all of us in growth groups there's I can't remember almost 90 people 87 people in our church in growth groups and I think that should be an ethic within each of our groups is that we don't let each other just talk on the surface and stay on the surface but we really we really deal with the things that are beneath the surface we don't let each other hide it's probably not a good way to increase attendance in growth groups but hey i'll say it anyway <laughs> um, we just don't like to deal with conviction we 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 do what adam and eve did we 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 uh we hide from that we hide from conviction there's a pattern here and it begins to emerge it begins to emerge here um, this pattern has existed all the way back to genesis chapter 3 uh, when people sin, they don't go looking for God. They look for a way to escape. So the pattern is that we don't go looking for God. The pattern is this. God made us. God loves us. God established a relationship with us. Then we sinned, and we walked away from, we walked away from him. We don't go back towards him. It's not our pattern. It's not our nature. So God, what does he do? God comes after us. That's what God does. He makes a way for us to come back to him. That's what he does. That's what Christ is all about. Verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, it's not like God's walking through and says, mm, I have no idea where they are. I mean, he's God. He pretty much knows where they're at. Uh, but he asks this question, where, where are you? Now, what's interesting here is who sinned first? Eve sinned first. But look, who's responsible? Adam is. Who does God come looking for? He comes looking for Adam. Eve's responsible for her sin, but Adam is the one who's responsible for the family. Back in Romans chapter 5, it paints a picture for us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, it was when Adam sinned that the creation was infected and humanity was infected. And so back now to our, our story. God's walking through the garden and even... Though Eve sinned, first God is asking for Adam and he's saying, hey, where are you? This, this leads, and I'll just direct this to, to us, to myself and to all of us men here. Where are we? Men, where am I? 
Because let's be honest, our wives need us to step up and lead. God asked the question, where are you? Your kids need you to intervene. According to the most recent census statistics, one-third of children born in U.S. hospitals are born without a father's name going on the birth certificate. And 45% of children, 45% of children um, go to bed every single night without a father figure in the home. Seems crazy, but regardless, God is still saying today what he's saying back to Adam in the garden, where are you? And I, I just want to say, I'm, I'm, I personally am proud of the men of our church. I think the men of our church with things like our men's ministry and the way men have stepped up to growth group, uh, I'm proud to be part of a group of men here that, that love these things, love the ways of the Lord, but I don't think we can read this story and not at least ask ourselves, am I really stepping up? Is there ways in my home and in my, my church that I could be stepping up, filling the gap? Where are we? So God is in the garden. He says to Adam, where are you? Then we come to verse 10. Come to verse 10 here. Verse 10 says this. Maybe. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is great. Jesus, Jesus is known for asking good questions, but God here asks a pretty good, pretty good question. He goes, who told you? Who told you that you're, you're naked? It's a rhetorical question that comes up here. Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, how did you know you were naked? And then the man says, verse 12, he says, the woman, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, it's obvious here. You can't read this and not sense a a strong accusatory tone. But a lot of people put the emphasis on the woman here. When I read this, I believe the emphasis is instead on you. The woman, God, that you gave me. The woman that you put in my life. You're the one. It sounds almost like he's blaming, he's blaming God here. He says, you, you made me. You put me in this garden. Everything was going great. I'm naming things. I'm, uh, I'm hanging out. I'm living the bachelor life. I'm doing just great. And then this woman shows up, and she kind of messes everything up. And you, God, you put her in my life, and now look what, what's happened. And I think men today can do this, too. They can say the same thing. They can say things like, God, I, I think you may have given me the wrong woman. I, I mean, she's okay, but maybe she's not perfectly right for me. She doesn't meet all of my needs. And, and it's sad to say that many men today say things just like this. And they think that God picked out the wrong woman for them. And he allowed them to, to, to be together. And that's why they can bounce from woman to woman, girlfriend to girlfriend, wife to wife. But maybe, maybe the problem isn't with Adam, or isn't with Eve. Maybe the problem isn't with God, but maybe it lies specifically here on, on Adam. Verse, verse 13. Verse 13. Then, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now you may have heard the old joke. God said, what have you done Adam blamed it on the woman, the woman blamed it on the serpent, and the serpent had no leg to stand on. That's kind of the, the old joke there. Now, the thing about Eve here is that she actually speaks the truth. She speaks the truth. 
He lied to me, and I was deceived. And then there were, unfortunately, all of the consequences that came from this. And we think about consequences that relates to the different genders. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and on the dust you will eat all of the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's way more here going on than we, than, we can, than we can cover in depth. But just to summarize here, basically it's saying this. Satan, you picked a fight and you're going to lose that fight. Here's a foreshadowing of, of Christ again. Adam lost the first battle, but God's going to win. He's going to win the war through Christ. And, and although Satan will inflict a, a bruise upon him, Christ will inflict a moral wound on, on Satan. What he's saying here is that it talks about a bruise on the head um, on the head versus a bruise on the heel. That's basically one is a flesh wound, but the other one is a death blow. Verse 16 now says this. To the woman, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. Oh boy. This is why they have legalized drug dealers in the hospital called an anesthesiologist because of this right, right here. And, and you moms know this. I made this mistake many times, well, three times. Uh, as a matter of fact, with all three of our kids, you know, my wife's pregnant and we're talking to people and I would say things like, yeah, we're having a baby. And then my wife looks at me like, we? We are having a baby? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I don't, have to, I don't have to go through the pain of that, but, but women do. Now, this next clause here is debated. It's debated amongst linguists and theologians, and it says this, yet your desire, yet your desire will be for your husband. Now, some people will read that and they will think, well, her desire is going to be, her desire is naturally just going to be for her husband. Her passion is just going to be for, for her husband. But, but a lot of linguists say that it's actually the opposite of that. It's the very opposite of that very thing. And what he's really trying to say here in the original language, the phraseology is spoken about in Genesis chapter 4, which we see right here, Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door, God talking to Cain. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overcome it. Same exact word there, sin is crouching. So in other words, what, what some think God is saying here, and what I would think as well, is he's saying here, is because of the curse, you you will have a desire to rule over man because of the curse. So part of the curse is that women will see their husbands as incompetent. Imagine that. Part of the curse is they'll see him as a sinful and clueless guy, not taking leadership, not making decisions. That'll be part of the curse. Part of the curse will be just to boss him around. If you can't get it together, you're going to get it together for him. And you'll do whatever means. You can withhold sex, silent treatments, hiding favorite power tools, no more ESPN, Two, two ESPN references in the same sermon. That's the first. Um, all of these things can happen. But your desire will be to rule over him because he's a lot like, and we can tend to be, a lot like Adam. A little bit incompetent at times. He's not taking the lead. But look at what it says as it ends there. But he will rule over you. He will rule over you. The, the last question here is this. Women, for women specifically, am I ruling over him? Am I ruling? Now, I know when I say something like this, many women and men, for that matter, are going to say something along the lines of, does that mean that he can boss me around, tell me whatever to do? Uh, is that what leadership means? Um, not when we look at the Bible. That's not what leadership means. Noah read the passage. Men, husbands, they are to die for their wives. They're to sacrifice for their wives like Christ sacrificed 
for the church. They are to, to sell out to love the women in their life, which means that we seek counsel from our wives as men, and we, we, uh, we listen to them, and we protect, and we provide a secure, safe environment. We, we lead as, as married men. Now, verse 17 causes some problems for some people. It goes like this. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Some people read this and say, see, that means I don't have to listen to my wife. I don't have to listen to her because of this. But that's obviously not what he's saying. I mean, if I'm one with my wife, how can I not listen to her? I mean, I, I know I'm slow, but how can I not listen to one that I'm one with? It's not talking about that at all. Here's the problem. Adam heard what God said. He heard what God said. And then he heard what his wife said. And then he listened to her and he didn't listen to God. That was where the problem was. It was who he, he listened to. He's saying here that you should always listen to God. Everyone, anyone. But listen to God, but except for anybody else. Next verse here. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it. In the, all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were naked. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he's basically saying to Adam here, you're going to get a job, and your job is going to stink. Uh, plainly put, every man has a crummy job. Every man has a crummy job. It's funny, as a youth pastor for nine years, that means I got to see nine classes of, of, of guys in our group that got done, graduated, and either went into a trade, hopefully, or went to college and prepared for something. And, and almost to a T, all of them thought that this is going to be just great. It's going to be, you know, like Google. There's going to be heated toilet seats, and there's going to be, like, fridge full of adult beverages, and there's going to be video games, and there's all, all of these things. There's going to be all of this stuff and, and then they get into the real world and realize that's not the real world. And before long, they're disenfranchised with, disenchanted with their job, and they're ready to move on. The grass is always greener on the other side. Um, the reality is that, that even as great of a job as someone may get, at some point, it, it, that, that job is going to turn into work. It's just going to happen. It just, it's the way of it. It's part of, it's part of the curse. It's part of the curse. But this is what one commentator said. One commentator says, God wants Adam to feel how frustrating it is to have things under his dominion disobey him and complicate his life. And that's about right. But here's the deal. In the end, this work builds into man humility. This work builds into man a dependency upon God, and it prepares and cultivates his heart to lead his family, to, to have a heart for the gospel, to want to serve God and, and other people. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and, and clothed them. Now, God didn't just whip out a leather suit here from nothing. It's, it's thought and most believe that God went into the garden and sacrificed living animals to clothe them in leather. And so here we would have really the first blood shed for sin we see that here animals their lives are taken and there's fashion of skin as a covering verse 22 says this 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live together. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. So God here kicks him out of the garden. Kicks him out into the, out of the garden into the wild world because if they had eaten of the tree of life, they would have remained in that physical state forever in sin-infected bodies. But God wants to redeem them. He wants to redeem us. He wants to give us new bodies. He wants to give us a new earth. He wants to give us a new heaven. We talked about that already. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus came as the second Adam. He came to undo what Adam did at the beginning. So now, next week, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy. And um, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15 specifically and uh, that specifically talks about how Jesus came to change a lot of things. He, t- he changed a lot of things. Almost no one had more of a radical and revolutionary impact on women's rights, if you were to say, than Jesus in his day. As a rabbi, he changed a lot of things, a lot of the way that people looked at, at women. And he still continues to do that even to this day. But Jesus understood. Jesus understood that, that male and femaleness is rooted in creation. It's not rooted in culture. It's not rooted in what our culture says it is. And so every time he talks about it, he goes back to creation. So next week, we're going to look at those practical implications of this. That's actually where it'll really get exciting if this wasn't exciting enough today. But, um, but we'll, we'll, go on, we'll go on next week and uh, enjoy. For those of you that are starting growth groups this week, you'll notice um, in your bulletins, you, you have the questions on the back, and um, you don't feel like you need to exhaust this topic this week because you're going to get an opportunity to, to do a little more in-depth study uh, next week as well. So it's a big topic, and we want to make sure to cover it appropriately. So I'd invite the worship team to come up. As we close in prayer and a song, would you please stand with me? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for uh, the way that you created us perfectly, uh, Father, forgive us for the times in which we allow uh, the, the ways of culture to inf- uh, infect our thinking, uh, our, our speaking, our, our behavior. Uh, we confess that to you. Uh, Father, we, we commit ourselves to being um, students of your word, driven by biblical truth and not cultural truth. Um, help us, though, in the midst of this, to love our culture radically. To, to love our culture with, with abandonment, to love those around us. Lord, we, we all have people in our lives that, that couldn't disagree more with, with this way of design. Um, in that, Lord, help us to know how to love them well um, in, 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 in perfect humility, balancing both grace and truth. We need that, Lord, more than anything. Um, we love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.